0: UNRWA is in trouble. Extremely serious allegations, which implicate several UNRWA staff members in the terror attacks of October 7th in Israel. The UN Agency for Palestine Refugees is accused by Israel of being infiltrated by Hamas and having had some of its staff involved in the attacks on October 7th. Nearly two million people in Gaza depend on UNRWA for survival as war and displacement continue The allegations by Israel concern a fraction of the workforce in Gaza, 12 out of 13,000 staff members, but are having devastating consequences for the organization, threatening its very existence. While an investigation into Israel's claims is ongoing, the United States, Germany and Sweden, the largest individual donors to the organization, have all paused their funding, while the European Union is wavering over what to do. Norway is one of the largest donors to UNRWA and says it will continue its funding. Today I speak to UNRWA Chief, Commissioner General Philip Lazarini, Norwegian State Secretary Andreas mutzfeld Kravik, and Jürgen Jentsehaugen, a Prio expert on the Arab-Israeli conflict. I am Arno Siad, and you're listening to Prio's peace in a pod. State Secretary, Commissioner-General Jürgen, welcome to this episode. Commissioner-General, I'd like to start with you. The UN has said that unless funds are restored urgently, UNRWA will not be able to operate past February. For our listeners, what are the immediate consequences of major donors pausing their funding? Can you tell us what's the situation like at the moment for UNRWA and the people it serves? The
1: consequences will be felt as from uh, March and and will deepen as from April, uh, basically. But it will not only impact our ability to respond to the huge humanitarian need uh, in the Gaza Strip, uh, but it will also impact uh, our activities in the West Bank, East Jerusalem, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon, where we have uh, hundred of thousands of girls and boys uh, in our primary and secondary school, where basically we are running also primary health care for 2 million uh, Palestinian uh, refugees, uh, and where we are also, for many of them, the only lifeline. So unless uh, um, countries are re- revising their decision to defreeze uh, their contribution to UNRWA, the impact uh, will start to be felt uh, as for the months of March.
0: Mr. State Secretary, Norway has been vocal in maintaining its funding for UNRWA. Minister of Foreign Affairs Espen Bart Aide, said in a statement on February 7th, these allegations are shocking and we expect full transparency. There must be zero tolerance for such actions. However, we should not collectively punish millions of people for the alleged wrongdoing of 12 staff members. I urge all donors that have suspended their support to think about the consequences. To all listeners, explain what led Norway to take that position.
2: So as you uh, alluded to, our position has been very clear. We uh, have been demanding that there needs to be an investigation of these claims of uh, misconduct, but at the same time, we think it's uh, not appropriate to cut funding. And the reason for that, uh, striking that balance or strike, you know, communicating along those lines is essentially twofold. One is you look at the importance of Umbra in the region It provides assistance for close to 6 million individuals. And it's a lifeline for all those individuals. And especially in the current context where you see, uh, you know, incredible suffering on the Gaza Strip. You see people taking shelter in AMRA's facilities. We think, uh, you know, cutting funding for AMRA in this current moment would just be inappropriate and would not be an adequate response. And I think also if you assess the situation outside of the current context, you know for us it seems appropriate of course to investigate to ensure that there's transparency and there there can't be any impunity when you have allegations and if those allegations are confirmed there needs to be clear consequences for those individuals if they in fact were formed part in perpetrating the uh, the gruesome attacking as Israel and let me just underline we haven't seen any evidence in that regard so that's a still that's a pending question but if that were to be confirmed those individuals need to be held accountable of course But we don't think that it would be appropriate to do away with the entire organization to cut funding for the entire organization. It would be akin to if you had... Um, you know, police officers in Norway conducting or being involved in some form of misconduct and saying that we're going to cut funding for the police. Now, what you need to do is you need to keep up the funding. You, For us, you know, it would be important for more countries to come in and fund Umbra, while at the same time, we need to be clear-eyed about the investigation that needs to take place and that there needs to be clear mechanisms put in place in order to provide accountability and also to ensure that this cannot happen again.
0: But how do you explain that countries like Sweden, Finland and Iceland did not heed your call to continue their support and to think about the consequences? I mean, have you consulted with your Nordic colleagues on that issue?
2: So we've consulted uh, closely with uh, everyone. You know, it's an issue which is very, very high on our agenda because we are concerned about what's happening on the Gaza Strip. Of course, we've again, we've seen human suffering on a scale which is almost unprecedented. So, of course, we've been consulting with our Nordic partners and we've been very clear. We've been saying to them that this is not the right moment to cut funding. And of course, we've also been clear that we appreciate that they're concerned about, you know, these uh, individuals allegedly being part of the, or forming part of the attacks as usual on this, on October 7th. And we're having conversations with them around these topics and how to move forward in an appropriate fashion. And I, I'm relatively optimistic that there will be um, sort of uh, a change, of course, but there needs to be investigation now. And uh, AMRA has been very cooperative. There's an UN investigation. There's also an independent review where you have various Scandinavian institutions involved. And we're hopeful that once we see some preliminary reports coming out of those investigations,
0: that also some of our Nordic partners will lift their suspension of funding to UNRWA. I'll get back to those investigations in a moment. But, Jorgen, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said recently that UNRWA is totally infiltrated by Hamas, quote-unquote. This is what he said on the 1st of February.
1: And I think it's time that the international community and the UN itself understand that UNRWA's mission has to end. UNRWA is self perpetuating. It is self perpetuating also uh, in its the desire to keep alive the, refu- the Palestinian refugee issue. And we need to get other UN agencies and other aid agencies uh, replacing UNRWA uh, in, uh, if we're going to solve the, the problem of Gaza as we intend to do.
0: Can you comment on what we just heard from Benjamin Netanyahu and why should UNRWA remain a separate entity from, say, UNHCR, the main UN agency for refugees?
3: I think we need to unpack that uh, Netanyahu statement into two. So on the one hand, there is a clear understanding in that statement that there is a need for somebody to deliver humanitarian uh, aid. Uh, And it's very clear from an Israeli perspective that, you know, Although they won't say so openly, the humanitarian aid that comes in is a cost-saving mechanism for them because as an occupying power, they're actually responsible for the population of Gaza and the West Bank, but they're not delivering. So aid is important for them both because it's it's cost-saving, it reduces pressure on them. But the other aspect of that statement is is a very politicized Israeli position that it's UNRWA that maintains the existence of the Palestinian refugee issue and their right of return. Now, this is kind of a false accusation, because the Palestinian right of return is a right. So even if UNRWA collapses and and disappears, that right is there. Um, And legally speaking, if UNRWA does collapse, and we really hope that doesn't happen, then the Palestinians will be folded into the UNHCR, which will then maintain their right of return, and arguably even push it more, because UNRWA doesn't have the mandate to push that. Uh, But from an Israeli perspective, UNRWA is seen as kind of the symbol uh, of that right. But it's a false accusation and it's a false premise. But that is the political parameter of that debate. What UNRWA does is it delivers humanitarian aid. And there is no short-term way of of replacing UNRWA uh, because it has the know-how. It has the people on the ground. It's a relatively cheap organization compared to other UN organizations. And removing it now would just be a catastrophe. Mr. Lazzarini?
1: UNRWA is more than a humanitarian organization. It's an organization providing human development services. Uh, we are providing primary health care. We are providing education to the children. So basically, if you dismantle UNRWA today, which I believe is very short sighted if limited just to the human response, uh, we are also undermining and compromising the chances of success uh, for any transition, once the os- military hostility will be over, there will be a time of uh, pain, misery for the people in Gaza, a long period during which the international community will not uh, substantially invest into the reconstruction, you might have an emerging uh, Palestinian authority and administration, but one top priority at that time will be to bring back uh, half a million girls and boys deeply traumatized into an education system. And it is clear that there will be absolutely no Palestinian authority at that time which will have the capacity to do this. And UNWISE the only organization which has been task mandated to provide these public-like services. So if we want to give a chance to a successful transition, you need also the tool to provide softer services. And education, for example, will be a top priority because the more we will wait, the more we will be sowing the seeds for future uh, resentment or hate. So that's what UNRWA can provide during the transition. We are a temporary organization which we should end the day there is a political solution. And I hope that now the international community, after the seismic changes in the region, will genuinely commit to a political solution and generally commit to a phasing out of UNRWA but once we have a proper administration in place.
2: Mr. Kravik? I think those are, are really important points, both by Jürgen and, and Philippe. And first and foremost, as Jürgen was alluded to, alluding to, I think it's very, very uh, important to recognize that UNRWA has a mandate established by the General Assembly when Israel was created. So OMRA has a, a, a clear mandate, and it can't be just replaced by any other entity for, for legal reasons. So that's number one. But number two, which is equally important, perhaps even more important, as was alluded to by Philippe, there is no alternative to OMRA on the ground. And when you look at the, the state of play now on the Gaza Strip, where you know there's basically no infrastructure in place, all the schools have been, to some extent, destroyed at least you know they're significantly impacted by the hostilities that have been ongoing for for several months now you have hospitals being decimated we can't start now from scratch and move away with the with the one organization that has a clear legal mandate and has a clear ability to provide some form of services to the palestinian civilians and as others have been saying and as was repeated now by uh, by philippe it's clear that what we need to do now is is to try to work for a or try to get a ceasefire implemented and try to get this process moving towards a two-state solution. And in order to achieve that, we need someone that can alleviate the suffering on the Gaza Strip, that can provide schooling for the children, can provide help, basic health services, while at the same time creating the necessary space for a political process. So this, for us, is a is something, UMRA needs to be strengthened, UMRA needs to be held, of course, needs to develop uh, mechanisms that can ensure that you don't have any individuals uh, forming part of of, of any attacks um, uh, against civilians, while at the same time, we cannot engage in any form of collective punishment. So we need to be able to do several things at once. And let me just say also that it's important to understand that UMRA has been operating on the Gaza Strip now for several years. And that uh, it's uh, you know there's an ecosystem um, in Gaza, which of course UNRWA is is part of. It's a uh, it's Gaza has been uh, marginalized, has been uh, brutalized to a certain extent for several years. So it's not the, this is not like operating in Sweden or Denmark or Norway. You you have to take into account the the really really difficult circumstances, and we should also be mindful about the fact that UNRWA staff has been you know you've had more than 100 individuals umrah uh, staff killed during the over the course of just the last few months so this is this is a a, a situation which requires a very strategic and
0: calibrated response by the international community Right. You said collective punishment, and I think that takes us back to the allegation itself from the Israeli government. And that's a question to you, Commissioner General. For listeners, uh, the Israeli government has said that 12 of your agency's employees were involved in the October 7th attack by Hamas, in which 1,200 Israelis were killed and more than 200 taken hostage. Your agency immediately terminated the employment of nine of the accused staff members. I believe that the other three two are dead and one is missing. A Wall Street Journal report also referenced an Israeli intelligence dossier indicating that some 10% of UNRWA workers in Gaza have allegedly substantial ties to Islamist militant groups. Aside from the internal investigation by UNRWA, the UN has also appointed an independent review group to address those allegations made by Israel. And a final report is expected to be completed by late April, 2024. Mr. Lazzarini... Have you seen evidence from the Israelis on these allegations?
1: Yeah, let, let's be clear on this one. For the time being, their are allegations. They have been shared with the United Nations orally. The UN has never, never, ever received any written dossier, despite our repeated call for cooperation from the Israeli authorities. Now, as you mentioned, There is a written dossier which seems to have been shared with the media, possibly also with one or two two member states, and our investigation team looking into the allegation of uh, the 12 alleged staff uh, are calling also on anyone having evidence uh, to share this evidence uh, with the investigation team. In parallel, as you indicated, we have a review of all the internal risk management mechanism, risk management related to a neutrality issue. What does it mean? As uh, State Minister Kravik said, we are not operating in a zero-risk environment. It's a deeply emotionally divided environment. But as a United Nations, we have to make sure that any of our staff uh, will behave uh, in line with uh, UN uh, value. And uh, that's what this uh, independent review is looking at. We have three Scandinavian institutes, one from Norway, f- uh, from Denmark, and one from Sweden, under the leadership of former Minister of Foreign Affairs, Catherine Corona. And basically, they will come with uh, a recommendation about uh, what the agency needs to do more in order to be fully compliant with its zero-tolerance policy when it comes to neutrality.
0: Catherine Colonna, the former French Minister of Foreign Affairs. So, as you said, there's been no evidence shared with you, but can you tell our listeners why you decided to immediately terminate their employment before an investigation on those claims could be concluded?
1: It's uh, indeed an unusual step. It's a harsh decision, but I have taken this decision because I needed to protect the reputation of the organization. But beyond that, the ability of the agency to continue to provide critical services to millions of Palestinian refugees, having asked after that for an investigation, in a certain extent, I have decided to go through a kind of a reverse due process.
3: Jürgen? Yeah, yeah, I just want to highlight that this this type of approach where the UNRWA staff are guilty until proven innocent really illustrates the type of pressure UNRWA is is under. So on the one hand, it shows that UNRWA really has to go the extra mile to ensure that funding comes in because they know that the consequences are so high if any allegations uh, stick. Um, but our research shows that there is there is also a negative impact on that from from the ground up because it, it undermines the... Um, the perceptions that the staff have of, of the leadership. And this is really a difficult line for UNRWA to, to walk. Um, but I think it's, it, it just really shows that, you know, the, the type of consequences that happen when aid is cut, it means that it, uh, the
0: organization really doesn't have a choice. And Mr. Lazzarini, I just want to take a step back for, for a minute. You said that the support for UNRWA wasn't just a lifeline for people in Gaza. You've said that the stability of the entire region actually depends on that funding. We're certainly seeing growing instability in the region, the latest being Israel increasing its attacks on Lebanon. But what did you mean by the entire stability of the region depending on UNRWA's funding?
1: Well, we know the stability of the West Bank is uh, teetering. We know that uh, the stability of uh, Lebanon is also teetering. Uh, Would uh, uh, our uh, support to the Palestinian refugees uh, in uh, Jordan, uh, stop. Uh, Jordan is also a country which is dealing with uh, 2.5 million uh, Palestinians in uh, general. Um, so basically having a collapse of uh, UNRWA beyond its uh, services would also create uh, domestic uh, unrest uh, in the respective uh, countries uh, where we are. So uh, Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, West Bank are all places where basically they are extremely anxious uh, about the ability of uh, UNRWA to continue to keep uh, its uh, services.
2: Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I was recently in, uh, in Jordan and visited with some of these camps and schools, et cetera, are driven by Umbra. And I spoke to the authorities, the Jordanian authorities afterwards, and they were very, very unequivocal in their statements in that for them, it would be a national catastrophe if UmRA collapses. And when we've been liaising with uh, other authorities in the region, they've been saying the same thing. So it's uh, it's very, uh, I think, critical to, to recognize that f- from the region, the countries in the region are, are saying the exact same thing as we're saying, you know, these uh, these alleged um, um, or these individuals that allegedly, you know, perpetrated or from far apart in perpetrating the attacks against Israel needs to be investigated, there needs to be accountability, there needs to be proper mechanisms put in place, but cutting funding for AMRA which would facilitate the collapse of Umrah in the current moment would be a disaster, a disaster for the region. It would provide an instability. It would, could also lead to a further military escalation because you would have further unrest uh, amongst, uh, you know, the various populations. And and it would be almost impossible for some of these governments to respond to that. So, I think uh, for us, it's it's this is a no-brainer for us. You know, there needs to be we need to do whatever we can to ensure that countries come in and provide funding, while at the same time ensuring that there is proper investigation, proper review of of the the current setup of AMRA. And we're very appreciative of the fact that Amra has now been very conducive in order to facilitating these two tracks that are ongoing: one by the UN, um, this this process um, that uh, OIOS process, which is a the, the appropriate mechanism that is put put in place by the UN when it investigates alleged you know alleged misconduct by by its own staff, and also this more macro review by the the, the three Scandinavian institutions.
1: Maybe on this one, anecdotally. Uh, we have received reports uh, in uh, Lebanon from the different schools in our camps uh, where because of uh, the risk of imminent financial collapse of the organization, we keep uh, hearing from teenagers telling us, well, I mean, if you cannot keep uh, the school uh, running, I'd rather now decide to go to join a militant or armed group uh, in, uh, in south of uh, Lebanon. So, I mean, there is clearly... Uh, uh, an impact beyond the political uh, significance and the reaction of the population and the government. Uh, uh, on 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 a day to day, there are also uh, important security impact.
0: So, UNRWA is acting as a peacekeeper in more ways than we might realize. But as we discuss this. There is no respite for the people in Gaza and in the West Bank. Netanyahu is now insisting an offensive in the Gaza city of Rafa, bordering Egypt, will take place, defying international pleas. There are roughly 1.5 million currently sheltering in Rafah, a place Israelis have told Palestinians to go to for weeks. Yurken, with most of northern Gaza destroyed and occupied by Israeli troops, where are the people of Gaza supposed to go? What's Netanyahu's plan? I think,
3: as has been said clear by very, very many people, there are no safe areas in Gaza. Uh, the situation in, in Rafa is catastrophic. We're talking about, um, you know, as you said, 1.5 million people in a tiny, tiny area. Most uh, healthcare facilities are destroyed. There is no functioning infrastructure at all. Uh, the Israeli blockade means that uh, far less than adequate amounts of water, medicine, food is coming in. So any military campaign in such a situation would uh, be the most drastic, most violent uh, part of this war yet, and that's saying uh, quite a bit. So it would be it would be absolute tragedy.
2: Just to underline what Yerin was saying, you know, we've said from the start that Israel had a right to self-defense after the gruesome attacks on October seventh, but those attacks need to be conducted, of course, within the confinements of international law and especially humanitarian law, and. It's relatively clear to us that what's been transpiring now over the course of the last few months on the Gaza Strip is not something that is comportable with international law, and and especially the requirement that you distinguish between civilians and military targets, and also that any attacks directly against civil, uh, military targets need to be proportional in terms of the damages caused and the the impact on civilians. And from our vantage point, you know, uh, if they were to go into the RAFA now, it's just incomprehensible. Um, it, it, it's virtually impossible to go conduct those attacks within the parameters of, of the humanitarian law. They're just not going to be able to do that. So we have been clear-eyed about the, the, the potential consequences, and we've, uh, as clear as we can, been warning against it and encouraging Israel to rethink that strategy and refrain from um, from launching a military attack in an area which is basically full of civilians with no functioning civilian infrastructure. Uh, it would be a travesty uh, for the Palestinians, it would be a travesty for Israel, and it would be a travesty for all of us who care about uh, uh, finding a tenable solution to this
0: problem, which provides a, a sovereign state for Palestine while at the same time providing security for Israel. You mentioned international law, and it's worth remembering that the International Court of Justice in its interim ruling on January twenty-six. Ordered Israel to ensure the delivery of aid to civilians in Gaza. Norway is party to the International Court of Justice. Now, with what we continue to see in Gaza, Francesca Albanese, the UN special reporter on the occupied territories, just said that Israel appears to be in breach of the ICJ orders, citing the lack of medical supplies, food and clean water, and continued demolition of infrastructure. Mr. State Secretary, you are a legal expert. Is it your analysis that Israel might be in breach of the ICJ's order there?
2: Well, I think it's clear that Israel rather might be in breach of the order. That's essentially why the court decided to, to issue that order. And Israel was given 30 days to respond in terms of how they are operating in conformity with, with the, the requirements that the ICJ established. And of course, as I said, if they were to go into Rafa, it's extremely difficult for us to see how that is something that can be reconciled with the various uh, requirements that the court imposed on Israel and on the basis of the genocide convention. But I think it's clear that th- these are plausible um, allegations um, and we have to see what transpires now. You know, We'll be re- scrutinizing the report that Israel is bound to deliver on the basis of that preliminary um, decision by the court. And uh, again, these are just extremely difficult uh, circumstances. But for us, international law is our yardstick. And uh, any misconduct, any violation of international law is something that we will call out and that we will uh, you know, be very, very unequivocal about in our advocacy. I just
3: wanted to bring this specific point back to UNRWA because one of the demands from the ICJ was that Israel allow humanitarian aid to enter the Gaza Strip uninhibited. Uh, and there is an argument to be made, and now I'm not a legal expert, but there is an argument to be made that when donors cut aid to UNRWA at this specific time, they are complicit in not allowing aid into Gaza in line with the ICJ demands. And that is a very serious thing. So so it means that those countries can be a part of kind of the, the evidence for what has been happening in that month period
0: that the interim ruling gave Israel. Last question to you, Mr. Lazzarini. What message do you have to donors who might be wary of resuming their funding to UNRWA just yet, or who might be waiting for those investigations and audit to conclude, something that will take months, if not longer?
1: I understand where the donor comes from. I understand that um, they had to take into consideration also some domestic uh, pressure. But I want the donor to be reassured that uh, as an agency, we have always been clear that we will not tolerate the uh, behavior of a uh, staff uh, which are not in line with uh, un uh, principle and i think we have proven it now through this uh, uh, investigation by showing absolute uh, swift uh, follow up and reaction and basically also taking decision which normally we should not be able to do we prove it also through this uh, review of our policies. But I think the donors have also to understand what does it mean, not supporting UNRWA. We heard it, that it is weakening our collective capacity to respond to acute humanitarian needs at a time the ICG is calling on Israel and the international community to scale up. And here there is an issue indeed of uh, compliance. But beyond that, uh, weakening or letting UNRWA uh, to fall down, beyond its impact on the day-to-day life of the people, this is also aimed at weakening the future right of the Palesti- of return of the Palestinian refugees, but is also weakening, if not killing, the aspiration of the Palestinian for future self-determination. And getting rid of UNRWA today will also weaken any prospect for a successful political solution. So I think we have to think twice. It goes far beyond the issue of technicalities. It goes far beyond the issue of who else can provide food or other services. Some might be provided by others, but other services, I also still believe... That no one can replace Honroi in the absence of a functioning state, which means uh, in the absence of a proper lasting political solution.
0: On that note, Commissioner General, State Secretary, Jorgen, thank you. This episode was produced by Arno Siad and edited by Brage Pedersen with sounds from WION and the United Nations. You'll find more episodes events, policy briefs, opeds and more on prio.org.